Almighty and living God, speak to us, otherwise we remain in ignorance. Shine your light upon us, otherwise we remain in darkness. Kindle a flame in our cold hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It was described as a moment of calm in Paris yesterday afternoon as David Martello played his little portal piano outside the concert hall where dozens of people had been killed just a few hours earlier. And the tune that he chose to to play, John Lennon's Imagine, of course. You know, the song that contains the words, Imagine... There's nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Well, as Christians, of course, we are very far from defending everything that is done in the name of religion. In fact, it's quite understandable today if uh, many people are saying, well, if that's what religion can do, then so much for religion and good riddance to religion of all shapes and sizes and colours. As Christians, we don't defend everything done in the name of religion. We don't even defend everything that's done in the name of the Christian faith. But if, as Christians, if, as a church, we know that our faith is not based on fear, hatred, and coercion, but on faith and truth and love, in other words, if our if our life together as Christians is based on faith in the God who saves, in truth as it is revealed in God's word, and love manifesting itself in deep and meaningful relationships. Well, we might say, well, that's sort of apple pie motherhood, isn't it? Who here today would say that they are against a gospel-focused Bible-based, people-centred faith. Nobody, of course. And yet those things maybe are not as obvious as they perhaps could be, because they are the very things that uh, Paul emphasises to Timothy in our passage this morning. I hope you still have a Bible open. If you haven't, please reopen it at page uh, 1193. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 4 from verse 9, and Hilary just read into the first couple of verses of um, chapter 5 as well. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 9. The difficulty for me as a preacher is... uh, highlighted in the heading of this chapter. Now, these headings were not part of the original inspired uh, text, but still this heading is very reasonable. Instructions to Timothy. So my problem is, I'm not Paul, and you're not Timothy. So what I want to try and do this morning is to look behind or through what Paul says to Timothy at the kind of church 
that Timothy had been placed in, uh, uh, amongst as pastor in order to ask the question, what kind of church do we want to be? What kind of things really do, in addition to all these lovely things, make us, or would make us, a great church to be a part of? I want to raise out of this passage nine questions. Don't look so worried. (laughs) Nine questions in three groups of three. And I'd be very grateful because not all of this, it may sound like apple pie and motherhood, uh, but not all of this is straightforward. And we have one or two, I think, surprises or little knots to untie along the way. Question number one from this passage. Do we look like people who have put our hope in the living God? To see how in verse 10, Paul, as it were, defines Christians as people who have put our hope in the living God. And I just would like you and I to ask that question of ourselves. Do we look like people who have put our hope in the living God. I'll say no more about it than that. I'll just leave the question in your mind. Question number two, getting through quite quickly so far. Do we behave as if God really is the saviour of all men and especially of those who believe? Well, that's an odd expression, isn't it? God, the saviour of all men, and especially of those who believe. Do you see that expression in verse 10? That's, again, how Paul describes this living God in whom we have placed our hope. Now, I, I think, having looked at this expression and its context and so on, I think that what Paul is getting at is quite a broad idea of God as saviour. I think he's thinking of God on this occasion, in this context, God as protector and provider. So I think what he's saying is God is protector, protector and provider for all people. He gives life to all. Everyone who has breath in their lungs, it's God's air that they are breathing. But God is especially protector and provider for those who believe. He gives life to all, whether they realize or acknowledge it uh, uh, at all, but he gives eternal life to those who believe. There's a verse in an old hymn that I remember singing when I was younger that used to worry me and puzzle me quite a lot. It's a hymn by uh, Isaac Watts, and it goes like this. Thy providence is kind and large, both man and beast, thy bounty share. The whole creation is thy charge, but saints are thy peculiar care. And you see why that puzzled and worried me, except that's exactly the teaching of Paul in this verse. The whole creation is God's charge, but God's people, the saints, that's you and me, folks, are God's special care. So we learn from this that God is 
kindly disposed to all. Not, in the context of this letter, not just an elite, as the false teachers in Ephesus seemed to have been teaching. God is kindly disposed to everyone, not just people like ourselves. Are we godly in that sense? Did not our Lord himself say, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back? And then, he said, you will be children of the Most High God, who is, who is kind to the grateful to, excuse me, to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Are we God-like in that sense? Do we behave then as if God is the saviour of all men and especially of those who believe? Question number three. Are we persevering in our efforts to save ourselves and others? That's what Paul urged Timothy to do in verse 16. Do you see that? Persevere in watching your life and your doctrine, your teaching, because if you do, you will save both yourself and others. I think Paul would want to look beyond Timothy and say that's a collective role and responsibility too for us all to be intent on saving ourselves and others. Very odd thing to say though, isn't it? That our job is to save ourselves and others doesn't sound very biblical, doesn't sound very evangelical. I think the, the thought here is a very biblical thought that God works through means. We know that eternal life is the gift of God, and we do nothing to deserve it, uh, still less to earn it. But God works through means. And here it is the means of salvation that are stressed. Just like Paul says in that famous verse, uh, pair of verses in Philippians chapter 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, big responsibility on us. Because, he goes on to say, it is God who works in you both to do and to work, both to, uh, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Yes, it is God who makes the spiritual seed to grow. But one of you needs to plant that seed and somebody else needs to come along to water it. I think that's somewhere else in Paul's teaching. So are we persevering in our efforts to save both ourselves and others? That's the first three questions, and they are to do really with the gospel, about wanting to be a great church in the sense of being a gospel-focused church. No one could to question four. Are we getting to know our Bibles better? To see how Scripture is emphasised in verse 13. Until I come, Paul says to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Now, public reading was so very important in those days because there's so very, very few written um, uh, copies of uh, the Scriptures available and relatively few people who could read those copies anyway. So the reading of God's word was particularly important, the, reading, uh, the public reading. I don't suppose I need to pause very long to, uh, to bemoan the increasing biblical illiteracy, both in society generally 
and in the church in particular. Just a quick anecdote. Not very long ago, a question was asked in um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And the question was worth £64,000. Supposed to have been a very, very difficult question. And the question was, according to the Bible, which one of the following was a king of Israel? Samuel? Solomon? Simeon? Or Samson? £64,000 hanging on the answer to that question. And he got it wrong. Let me recommend that we all, in regard to our own relationship with God's word, are determined to be not Bible tourists, going around just picking out the really fun, obviously beautiful and lovely and reassuring bits, but Bible explorers, searching, inquiring, discovering. Let's be Bible explorers rather than Bible tourists. And another piece of very quick uh, advice uh, that I'd want to give to myself as well as to you is to get used to listening to what uh, people sometimes call the Bible's melodic line. Ask yourself when you hear the Bible read or when you read it for yourself, where does this story, where does this saying fit into the overall storyline of the Bible? I'm going to leave that there as just two uh, encouragements as uh, we seek to get our, to know our Bibles better, as Paul advises here. That was question number four. Question number five is, do we really listen to God's word as it is being read and taught? Are we good listeners? Are we good hearers of God's word? Do you see, uh, again, in in verse 13, if Paul wants God's word to be read, it implies it will be listened to. Otherwise, it's falling on deaf ears. So may I ask you, as I have to ask myself, what kind of hearer are you with regard to God's word? Are you a stopwatch hearer? You know what I mean. Are you a spyglass hearer? Again, you know what I mean. Are you a grasshopper or indeed a butterfly hearer? A bit here and a bit there and a long gap in in between. Are you an umbrella hearer? As God's word is read or preached, you put up your umbrella and sort of say, oh, that'll do him good, that'll do her good, without it actually doing good to you. Or are you determined to be a well bucket hearer? wanting to go deeply down into the water of life and carrying off as much as you can carry? Do we really listen to God's word as it is read and taught? Question number six. Are we determined to be doers of God's word and not hearers only? That again is implied in verse 13. That word preaching that uh, Paul encouraged Timothy to do preaching, has this idea of exhorting. If you look that word up in the dictionary, it says urging people to do something. (laughs) 
That's what that word preaching means, urging people to do something. So our job as preachers is to urge you to do something. Are we determined to do something when we hear God's word? James, of course, has something to say about being doers as well as hearers of God's word. He says the person who, uh, who hears God's word but doesn't do it is like the person who looks at his face in the mirror and then turns away and forget what he, he looks like, forgets that his hair needs to combing, that he's got bristles that need to be shaved off, that his face is dirty. No, he says, the word will tell you what you need and to do, go away and do it. Are we determined to be doers of God's word and not hearers only? That's my second group of three questions. That's to do with us wanting to be a great church because we want to be a Bible-based church, getting to know our Bibles better, really listening to God's word, and determined to be doers and not hearers only of that word. Here come my last group of three questions. Question number seven. Are we setting a good example to others, to one another? In verse 12, Paul urges Timothy to set a good example, and I can't think that he would, have been, uh, that he would um, not have also wanted other Christians, set other kinds of examples to one another. And if it's true that a pint of example is worth a gallon of advice then what kinds of examples are we setting to one another? To our children. To our neighbours. And Paul doesn't leave this general. He goes for the particulars. Do you see in verse 12? In speech, that is to say, our personal conversation. In our lives, that is to say, in our everyday conduct. In love in genuine concern for others, in faith, that is to say, settled confidence in our living God, and in purity, moral uprightness. It's a big ask, but one of the best ways we can encourage one another in the Christian faith is by modelling good examples. Question number eight. Are we effective in recognising and releasing one another's gifts? Look at verse 14. Timothy's gift as a pastor and a preacher had been recognised by the church. It was being nurtured by Paul, but also needed to be fanned into flame by Timothy himself. Paul goes on to that in his second letter to Timothy. That's Paul to Timothy. But Paul says elsewhere that a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each Christian believer for the common good. And I simply want to say on the, on the authority of God's word, the fact that some gifts have been, may have been misused, misused, I'm thinking maybe of gifts of prophecy, of tongues, of healings, and so on. The fact that some spiritual gifts have been misused, may have been misused, is no adequate reason for any of them to fall into disuse. 
Are we effective at recognizing and releasing one another's gifts? Question number nine. Are we making visible progress? Paul wanted Timothy to make such progress that others could see it. That's in verse 15. You know the famous preacher's illustration of this, don't you, where um, um, uh, a parent is wheeling uh, her son in a buggy along the road and meets another, uh, 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 meets a friend coming along, and the friend starts to, um, you know, to, um, to to talk to the uh, to, uh, to to the son in the buggy and says, "Oh, coochie, coochie, coo," and all those kind of things. And how old is he now? Thirty-five. It's ridiculous to make no progress in our physical or mental lives. But what about our spiritual progress? Can others see it? The Christian life is likened to a race. So let us throw off everything that hinders and let us run with perseverance that race that is marked for us. Or if that sounds a bit too energetic this morning... The Christian life is also likened to the progress of the sun in the sky. Isn't that beautiful in Proverbs chapter 4? The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shines ever brighter until noon, and then declines down to sun. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't talk about decline at all. It says the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of, of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. Whatever age you are as a Christian man or woman, however long you have been a Christian, is your spiritual light shining ever brighter till the full light of day? So then, nine questions in three groups of three for us to be a gospel-focused, Bible-based, people-oriented church. If that's the church we want to be, then we will be becoming the church God wants us to be, and we will be great. Amen.